It's Advent, and our friend Scott Erickson taught us last week, and I hope you enjoyed it. I know I got a lot out of it. Scott said that during this season, we often feel these pressures. Pressures, for example, to like come up with the right gift for the people in our lives, or pressures to create the right setting for all of these idealized holiday scenes, or pressures to come up with the right feeling, as if this season is supposed to manufacture all of these experiences of, of, of joy and happiness and fullness and love and delight. And upon naming those pressures, Scott said, maybe it's not about getting any of that right. Maybe the heart of this season is actually revealed in the center of the season, which is God arriving as a baby, which is a really vulnerable thing to do. And I've watched Scott's teaching a couple of times as it's worked on me. And this thing keeps standing out to me. He said that vulnerability uh, is both something that God demonstrates and something that we are invited into if we want to welcome God. And that vulnerability has something to do with like taking off our armor. The root of the word has to do with um, old language for wounds. And then from there, you sort of get uh, the ability to be wounded, able to be wounded. And then you get like taking off your armor uh, to suggest that like vulnerability is to ask what kind of armor are we wearing? And is it possible the armor that we are wearing to protect ourselves is the very thing that's keeping us from meeting God in our actual everyday lives? Now, um, as I heard his teaching and was thinking about the Christmas story, I kept coming back to one of the characters. And it, I, the more I think about it, it's like you can actually see this character taking off their armor if they're going to welcome Jesus, if they're going to welcome the arrival of God and be a part of this story. Um, as Scott said, that like vulnerability is our avenue to our participation with God. So I want to take you uh, into this, this character's experience. And the character I'm talking about is Joseph, uh, Mary's husband. And his story comes up in Matthew 1.18. Let me just sort of work through some of this with you here. So this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, quick time out here. Uh, read the commentaries, work on the text. It's important to call out, the, the text isn't suggesting that Joseph knows that the Holy Spirit is why Mary is carrying this baby. It's just that's another part of the story that he's about to find out. All he knows is that he's engaged to Mary, and she's found to be pregnant, and he and Mary haven't been together yet in that way. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce her quietly. Now, when the text says that Joseph was faithful to the law, uh, another way that that's translated is Joseph was a righteous man. Now, to say that Joseph is a righteous man, that's not just some kind of vague description. That's a very specific and kind of technical term for these people at this time. And it means that Joseph has a reputation for upholding every bit of the law. That's every bit of the Torah, the law that God gave the Israelites. Now, if Joseph is a righteous man who has a reputation for, for upholding every part of the Torah, then he has a problem right now. Because back there in the law, back there in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 22, there are instructions for what you do if a woman who's engaged to be married is found to have been sexually active before she came together with her husband. Uh, in fact, the, the instructions are pretty clear and they're pretty severe. Uh, the fiance, in particular, if he's the one that discovers that she has been unfaithful, he is supposed to deliver her up either to the elders of the village for trial or to the door of her father's house where she's to be stoned to death. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the problems with 
that and what it is to have a sort of critical relationship with some of these passages that seem incredibly misogynistic. And we could do that sometime and that might be really important. But right now, I, I just wanna observe that Joseph as a righteous man, he's got a problem on his hands because if he's gonna continue to live up to his reputation as a righteous man, he's gonna have to deliver Mary up to a severe and likely uh, fatal judgment. Now we read on in the text, um, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And uh, a little later on, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Now, um, there's a lot of layers to Joseph's righteousness and how we might relate to it today. But like I said before, I've been thinking about Scott's teaching about vulnerability and taking off our armor. And it strikes me that Joseph is a man who probably wore his righteousness like a bit of an armor. A lot of us do this. Whatever kind of community we inhabit, whether it's religious or not, there tend to be codes of righteousness, right? Virtue codes, ways that you're supposed to behave. And then when the community observes you behaving that way, the community rewards you for behaving that way. So yeah, there, there's the religious settings where a lot of us have experienced this, right? Like here's the list of do's and don'ts, the behavioral prescriptions. And if you live up to those prescriptions, you're gonna be welcome in this community. You're gonna belong in this community. You're gonna be affirmed in this community. And if you don't, you might be judged by this community. You might be estranged from this community. You might be treated as a threat to this community. Uh, that's not uncommon in religious settings. And a lot of us have lived in spaces and grown up in places where, where we are taught to wear a certain kind of righteousness so that we could preserve our own belonging in the community. That's, that's not uncommon. Uh, however, religious places are not the only places that have righteousness codes. In fact, like most groups, however you find yourself in a group, most groups have righteousness codes. They, like, here's what it is to be a good person, and here's what it is to be a bad person. And if you fit into the good person category, you are welcomed by this group, you are esteemed by this group, you belong with this group, you're empowered in this group, you're given status in this group, this group will look out for you. That's a really safe, cozy place to be, which is why a lot of us are tempted to wear some kind of righteousness like an armor to protect ourselves. Uh, you can, you can chart this regardless of where a group is at on the ideological spectrum because conservative-minded groups have righteousness codes and liberal-minded groups have righteousness codes. Or Like pick your labels, pick your groups. Most of us find ourselves in settings among groups of people that have righteousness codes. And a lot of us end up performing a certain kind of righteousness and you may not even realize you're doing it. And we're not doing it um, so much because of some deeply embedded virtue within us, we're doing it to protect ourselves. And if you think for a moment about the places where you've been tempted to protect yourself by performing a certain kind of righteousness, you can probably feel how scary it is to think about taking off that armor. Like maybe your life isn't as good as it looks. And maybe you've thought about telling the whole truth about your life, not just the good, but the bad, not just the beautiful, but the ugly. Maybe you've You've thought about being a little more real, a little more transparent, a little more vulnerable, but the thought of taking off that armor, I mean, you can hear, or you can, you can feel your heart race a little bit. You can sense the anxiety ticking up in you because you know it may not go well for you when you do that. Uh, Joseph has a choice to make. He's either going to keep his armor on 
Which means he's, he's got to deal with this situation with Mary, who is pregnant, though they've never been together. He's got to deal with this in a way that's um, violent to Mary and to the baby she's carrying. And it's, uh, it's going to be the end of this story, at least Joseph's participation in, in this particular way that God is arriving right now. Or he can take off his armor. He can forsake his reputation as a righteous man if he wants to keep up with what the Spirit of God is doing, if he wants to welcome the arrival of God in his life. Now, the righteousness thing and protection, like, like I, I want to keep working that out because it's not just like codes that groups have, like, like virtue prescriptions for how to behave. We could go even further and just observe that every one of us has these ways that we sort of project who we are out into the world. We want to project that we are good or righteous, or we want to project that we are competent, or we want to project that we are compassionate, or we want to project that we are successful or that we are justice-minded. Like you can go down the list. We all have these different ways that we, we, we inadvertently and usually sort of unconsciously try to project these identities out there in the world. And often they, these projections begin to develop pretty early in our lives because there's unique ways that we each begin to feel unsafe in the world and we start putting on our armor. And if it's true that vulnerability is our avenue to our participation with God as God arrives, th then we might be called to do some deep work to figure out how to, how to take off our armor and dismantle some of the projecting that we've been doing and it might feel like you're standing there a little bit naked and seen in ways that you don't wanna be seen. And nobody naturally moves toward that, but the story seems to be saying that's exactly how we welcome God. So let me tell you a story about a way that this played out in my life. It's an embarrassing story. It's not one that I'm super proud of. Uh, and yet it's, it's true and it taught me so much. So years ago, something like 12 years ago, uh, there's a backstory that I won't even bore you with, but the point is I ended up in a situation where a friend of mine uh, was also my intern uh, at the church I was working at, and he had just graduated college, and he had uh, played soccer at Notre Dame when he was a student there, and he was back both volunteer assistant coaching at Notre Dame, and, um, and he was also working with me at the church. And so we were close friends, and we'd spend a lot of time together outside of the work, and then often he would also spend time with some of the guys on the team that were still students, and so all of us would spend time together. And some of these students were kind of freaked out about the pastor who kept showing up in their space, right? So this went on for a few months um, and I would kind of tag along sometimes and be in their space. And we kind of knew each other, but we really didn't. Uh, but my, my friend, Nate, who uh, had been interning with me and working with the team, he was coming to the end of that season of his life and he was about to leave town and move on to what was next. And so he, uh, he had one last night in town and he was gonna go say goodbye to the guys in the team and he asked me if I'd come with them and so I did. And so I was there for that de departure with Nate and the guys and then we all left. And I remember sitting in my car feeling something. And the best sense I can have was like, it was a feeling of, of potential, uh, something unresolved, some kind of unfinished business. Uh, it was also a, sort of a, a feeling of, of affection for these sort of like barely friends that I had gotten to know through Nate. And so I remember sitting in the parking lot, uh, praying and basically saying like, this is weird. But if there's something I'm supposed to say yes to here uh, with these guys on the team, I think I'd like to say yes to it, but I have no idea what that means. Well, the next day I get a text message from a number that I don't know. And it says, sir, 
I have a philosophy or religion paper that I'm struggling with. Nate says you might be willing to help me with it. And it turns out it's, uh, it's one of these guys on the team. So I say, yeah, and I go over there and that begins this long uh, process of sometimes showing up to kind of tutor some of the guys on their papers, especially if they're doing philosophy or theology. And, and so I'm kind of lit up. It feels like I said yes to this hint, this inkling, this nudge, and it turns out I was right. Like there's something there. And so I'm showing up uh, when they ask for it and spending a lot of time in their space. Uh, and yet they're still super weirded out that the pastor is in their home. Uh, they're kind of pushing me and poking me and trying to provoke me in all sorts of really uncomfortable ways. Uh, there was a season where every time I walked in, they would put porn on the TV just to mess with me. Uh, they would ask really uncomfortable questions. And I don't know if they were testing my resolve or if they were testing my friendship, uh, but this would go on for a while. And, and I had this feeling that there was a reason that we were friends, although I didn't quite know what it was, but it felt like there was a reason that we were friends and that God had something to do with it. So I kept trying to like work the angles on whatever that would mean. And the more I tried to work the angles on, on, on trying to figure out whatever this potential was that I was Therefore, the more I tried to work the angles, uh, the, the worse things got. It's almost like I could just feel like they would get more guarded. Like, what, like do you have an agenda with us? Are you playing some kind of game with us? And so like, I'm in this conundrum for a number of months where I feel like this, this strange sort of circle of friendship that I never anticipated with people I probably wouldn't have ever uh, gotten to know had, had I not had this strange sort of inkling that it was like God was saying, hey, I want you to show up for these people for a season. Like, what is it all about? And how do I, how do I live up to that? How do I perform that? And yet, um, it's just like nothing I tried would work. So I'm, I'm chewing on this, this conundrum for a long time. And then I, I do some thinking theologically and, and about what it means to follow the example of Jesus. And it strikes me that like Jesus never seems concerned about wearing any armor. He never seems concerned about being impressive. I mean, even the miracles he performs, he always like shies away from any credit from those miracles, right? He, he wants them often kept in secret. It's like love compels him to heal people, but love also compels him to not want to be praised for it or have his ego fed by it. It seems that Jesus just never seems concerned with putting on any kind of armor. He lets people misinterpret him. He lets him be associated with all kinds of people that you're not supposed to be associated with if you're a religious leader. He just doesn't seem to care about wearing any armor. And then of course, he allows himself to be taken away and tortured and killed. He just doesn't seem to have any need to protect himself. And I kept nursing that sort of meditation and decided that I would stop trying to like be impressive with these guys and stop trying to prove myself to these guys, that all I would do would be to kind of show up as I am and like sacrifice or lay down or do anything that I needed to do to just be transparent and true with these guys. Uh, this all came to a head one night. I was over, uh, they had a townhome uh, just off campus and I was over there with a handful of the guys and as the afternoon turned into the evening, uh, a bit of an impromptu sort of party began to develop. And uh, before I know it, it's most of the soccer team and most of the Notre Dame football team who are there and me. And, uh, and so uh, this party begins to evolve and it starts to take a turn where I think it's probably a good time for me to sort of take off and get out of here. And so I say goodbye to the guys and I head toward my car. Well, uh, my car is parked out behind the townhome and there's a sort of balcony from the townhome that's looking out over the part of the property where my car is parked. 
And I walked toward my car that's about 30 yards away from that balcony where a bunch of these guys are still kind of hanging out and partying. And as I get to my car, a football lands at my feet. And I look back to the balcony, the deck where all the guys are, and I hear all the guys saying, hey, throw it back, throw it back. Now, here's the thing. Well, two things you need to know. First of all, um, the starting quarterback is one of the people yelling, throw it back. And this quarterback is like one of the more famous quarterbacks that's been around Notre Dame's history for quite a while. And the other thing you need to know about me as I stare at a football at my feet, look 30 yards back and see a bunch of D1 athletes telling me to throw the ball. I don't really know how to throw a football. Some of you already know this about me. Like, I'm looking at the football, I'm looking at the deck, and I'm thinking two things. One, I'm not going to throw this pretty. There's going to be nothing impressive. I'm going to be the laughing stock of a bunch of these guys if I pick up this football and throw it. And second, I'm thinking, I don't even know if I can get the football back up to the deck. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if I can get it that far. And so I look at the football, and I look at the guys, and I look at the football, and I look at the guys, and I think about this thing that I've been learning for quite a while which is that like, look, you can try to be impressive on your own. You can try to wear all the armor that you want. But if the thing that we want is some kind of participation with God, some kind of way of welcoming the arrival of God, of being part of what God is up to in the world, of knowing God and working with God, collaborating with God, like we don't get there by being impressive. We don't get there by projecting. We don't get there by performing some kind of righteousness. We don't get there by wearing all of this armor that we have learned to build over our whole lives. We get there by taking the armor off and being vulnerable. <laughs> so I look at the football and I realize like there's no going back from this moment. I pick up the football, I take a breath, and I throw it about 12 yards. <laughs> and it lands with a thud in front of me. And I go to my car and I drive away. And I think to myself, one of two things is gonna happen here. I've either lost every last shred of, shred of respect I would have had with these potential friends and I'll never hear from them again. I'll just be that weird pastor dude who showed up in our space and helped us get A's on a few papers or I just bet all of my chips on the thing that I've been learning, which is that, like Scott said, the avenue to our participation with God is vulnerability. And this, the sense that I had from the beginning with these friends was that this is a place to participate with God. Well, fast forward um, 12 years later, and like most of those guys are some of my closest friends today. And there's... Um, almost never a day when I'm clear on whether it's like I'm in their life for their sake or whether they're in my life for my sake. But what I can tell you is that over the last 12 years, there's been moment after moment after moment where those friendships have felt um, heavy with the presence and the, and the goodness of God as we walk through seasons of life since those guys were in college. And there's this other thing, which is that when we talk about vulnerability, when I talk about Jesus laying down his life, there's another word for, the, for what we talk about when we say vulnerability is taking off your armor and laying things down. And the other word is love. Because the scriptures say that, for example, when Jesus laid down his life, that that's what love looks like. That when God brought Christ into the world, that he did this because of love for our sake. That God expresses God's own vulnerability in our midst because that is what love looks like. And it's what we're being called to to. So this Advent season, um, like Scott said, I don't, I don't know if we're gonna come up with the right gift or the right setting or the right feeling. 
I don't even know if, if we can be the right kinds of persons. Because we keep bumping into our limits, don't we? And our frailty and the ways that we have a hard time living up. But maybe this Christmas season, it's not about that. Maybe um, instead of having to have the right gift or the right setting or the right feeling or being the right kind of person, we just have to take off our armor and say yes to the God who wants to arrive so that we can participate with this God. This Advent season, friends, I pray that you find the bravery to take off the armor, to know that protecting yourself can, can be important. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that you make yourself susceptible to harm or violence in, in, in real ways. And yet every day we're walking around with armor on and we think that it's making us safe and what we don't realize is it might be the very thing that's preventing us from welcoming God. And so take off the armor, may you stop projecting a little. May we know what it's like to forsake our reputations for righteousness so that we can keep up with the spirit. May we find our own ways of saying yes to the arrival of God this Advent. Grace and peace, friends.